welcome to Ivy League Murders. My name is Sarah Alcorn. I'm a Harvard graduate and a private investigator. And my name is Laura Rodriguez McDonald. I'm a University of Miami graduate, longtime crime aficionado, and part of a fourth generation NYPD family. Laura and I don't always agree on everything. With her NYPD roots and my criminal defense background, sometimes we find ourselves on opposite sides of the jury. We do share a mutual passion for crime solving, and we both grew up in Cambridge, steps away from Harvard University. On Ivy League Murders, we discuss cases where the best of the best make the worst decisions. We look at people who seemingly have it all and throw it all away. Hey, Laura, if our listeners want to support our podcast, what can they do? You can go to our website at clovercrestmedia.com, where we have merchandise, a donate button, and all of the books we talk about. We also can be found at buymeacoffee.com, and we would love any input or suggestions from our listeners, and we can be reached by email at ivyleaguemurders at gmail.com. And very importantly, if you enjoy the podcast, please hit the subscribe button and give us a five-star review. We really appreciate all the support we've gotten so far. Welcome to Ivy League Murders. I'm Sarah. And I'm Laura. And we want to thank everyone for tuning in. We have a great show today, so we're going to dive right in. And this week, we have Alan Levine, the award-winning international selling author and historian based in Winnipeg, Canada. He's written 13 books as a PhD in history from the University of Toronto. He's a freelance writer and a contributor to TV, radio, and podcasts around the world. And we are very happy to welcome Alan to Ivy League Murders. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Today, we are talking about your book called Details Are Unprintable, Wayne Lonergan and the Sensational Cafe Society Murder. So right. this was such a pleasure to read, I have to Thank say. You. It was... Before we dive right in, I have to tell you, I'm a big Dominic Dunn fan. Right. Vanity Fair, and, course, and you yeah. know, he, he wrote a lot about this case. Yeah, yes, and, yes. Uh, Dorothy Kilgallen also wrote right. about the case. So there's just feels like this case is kind of a historically important case. It is, and uh, there was great interest at the time by all of these writers. Dominic Dunn, of course, wrote about it later. But as I explained, I found the story in a Raymond Chandler article in Cosmopolitan magazine that he wrote in 1948 about his 10 greatest crimes of the century. At the time, uh, he was a great novelist. And number nine was this Lonergan case that I had never heard about. And it interested me, one, because Lonergan was Canadian. And uh, secondly, uh, you know, it just it was a murder that had all sorts of other overtones. The more I dug into it, the issues about homosexuality, and we could talk about it and so forth. So I, I started digging. And I did discover that there had been a book written about it, or two books, really, one in the 1950s, one in the 1970s. The 1970s book is interesting because it was written by a journalist from Florida and New York, but uh, Hamilton Darby Perry, and, and he had interviewed Lonergan about the case. And there, there was, it's an interesting book, but uh, he takes Lonergan at his word for too many times. So I kept digging, and what really got me into the story was that I had discovered that the DA or district attorney's files were available at the New York Municipal Archives, and I was able to access this stuff that hadn't really been looked at in you know 40 years. And and once I got there, then I arranged for it to be digitized and sent to me 
and you know they sent me like 1600 pictures of documents when we organized my daughter helped me organize it and it was like you know from an historian's point of view i felt like i, I had hit treasure uh, it, it was just fantastic material did it feel a little bit like a time capsule <laughs> yes it, yeah, it yeah. did it did and i mean it had witness statements and biographical detail on people that i never would have been able to find much about the private correspondence between the police and the da the medical examiner's report which became an issue in the trial so i had the entire report it had the victim's finances uh, patricia burton lonergan's finances or banking wow. statements I, everything from there i decided that there was a, a new book to be written about it that was a little more up to date and and i could tell stuff that no one else had told them that that's how i got I, I had been looking for a true crime book for a long time i had written historical mysteries actually i suppose aside from other books that i've written I did a series about four or five historical mysteries. So I've always been interested in that genre. I had been searching, I guess, for a true crime book to write about for a long time, and, and that's how I came across this. It's fascinating. Can you tell us about the central characters, starting with sure. Pat, Patsy Burton? Patsy, yep. Yeah. Patricia Burton Lonergan, she was only 22 when she died. She was born into a peculiar but wealthy family. And she was brought up in a, she was spoiled, I suppose, to a certain extent. But her family's roots were German-Jewish. It would have been her grandfather and her great-grandfather owned a brewing company. And her great-grandfather had come to New York from Germany in the 19th century. And like many other German Jews and other Germans, in fact, many settled in New York. And they established this very big business and it got successful. So by the time Patsy's father, William, came along, he was already a wealthy guy by the time his father died. The family was actually named Berntheimer or Bertheimer, and they changed it to Burton uh, during World War One, the two brothers, uh, William and his brother, possibly because, uh, well, they said it was to avoid anti-Semitism or anti-German sentiments so that uh, common in during the States during World War One. It was probably just to fit in more and so forth. So, I mean, there was, even though the family did belong to a synagogue, a reform synagogue in New York, there was nothing really Jewish, particularly about Patsy's upbringing. Her father, William Burton, uh, was a a troubled guy too, likely bisexual. Uh, he married uh, this woman, Lucille, uh, because that's what was done. He didn't really have to work because he inherited so much money when he turned 21. He fancied himself an artist. They lived half the year in France. South of France, they had this beautiful villa. So, so Patsy grew up. A lot of her younger years were spent in south of France. He wanted to be an artist. He never was really a good one, but he was also very rich. So the family went back and forth. Her parents, William and Lucille's marriage, fell apart for probably all sorts of reasons. The bisexuality, I'm sure, was part of it. And then they ended up actually getting remarried, they said, some years later for Patricia's benefit. I don't know if that's true, but I don't think it was a particularly strong marriage. And uh, she grew up uh, in this somewhat pampered environment. She you know, raised by nannies. And uh, she was a debutante, I call her. And by the time World War II comes along in, in 1939, she was somewhat participating in uh, some fundraising events for soldiers. And, and, and then her father dies in 1940. But before that, it, you know, Wayne Lonergan comes into their orbit. And then that's how her life really changed. She was introduced to Wayne by her father. I, I can talk a little bit about Wayne if you like. Yeah, you know, let's talk about Wayne is a peculiar man. He grew up in Toronto. 
which is a, you know, a large city, middle class. His father was like an insurance agent, but his mother was what we would call probably bipolar. So she had mental health issues throughout most of Wayne's life. They were Irish Catholic, like many. There's a lot of Catholics living in Toronto and many of them Irish. And, and he had some couple, two siblings. And, and you know, otherwise, he went to school. He did okay. But he got into trouble. His father dies when he's a teenager. And he starts getting in trouble as, I guess, a juvenile delinquent and is arrested several times and spends time in what we would call, a, I guess, a reform school or even a, like they send him away to a kid's play, a camp outside of the city limits. And it, it doesn't really uh, change him all that much. He, he's a man, very ambitious. He you know, started smoking, chain smoking, I would say, probably about the age of 15 and, and never stopped. And also the other issue about him is that he was he also had, I would say, pretty well, even though I can't say 100%, but I'd say he's, he was bisexual as well. And, and it, you know, he comes up in his life story on many occasions. Uh, he uses homosexuality as an excuse to explain his behavior. So, you know, it's something you can't avoid. And he seemed like kind of a hustler, too. He, he was. He yeah. was a hustler. And at the time, it, it was a very, I mean, homosexuality against, against the law in both Canada and the United States. So, you know, there are many men who probably suffered in marriages that they put up with because they had to. And you know, there's lots of movies and stuff about those kinds of things. But uh, it, it tainted his life. So he had various jobs. You know, he was a lifeguard. He, he worked for an orchestra. I mean, he, he didn't really have, he didn't go to university or anything like that. And then in 1939, he announces to his family that he got a job at the New York World's Fair, which was the largest event at the time. And he was going to work as a bus dispatcher for American Express that had a business operating there. And that's probably where he met William Burton. Uh, the story is that he either met him there or in a hotel, but the more common story is that he met him there. And they probably started, struck up some kind of relationship, an intimate relationship. I mean, you have to keep in mind, Wayne had no money, really. And suddenly he's thrust into this amazing world of uh, fancy drinks and bars and cafe society and because so in new york this event was at the time they spent a couple of billion dollars on this this was a huge world oh, yeah. fair incredible event yeah, it, it, it took place where the u.s uh, tennis open is now played same in queens and and it was huge but more than the world's fair even is that wayne is introduced to this wealthy lifestyle that obviously appealed to him he spends lots of time at william's apartment so for whatever reason, uh, which is well, who knows exactly what goes on behind closed doors, William does introduce his daughter to Wayne and they date. And I says, I said, William died in 1940 from a heart attack. So until that point, it's not exactly clear where their relationship was going. But once William dies, Patricia stands to inherit an awful lot of money because her grandmother, who's still alive, Stella, her name is, and didn't die till 1954. I mean, Patricia was set to inherit probably what we upwards of like what we in our value, about $60 million, which eventually goes to her young son. But her and Wayne start dating. The mother, Lucille, is back from Europe and frowns upon this relationship. Wayne is quite adamant about pursuing this. Is it love, money? 
I, I'm not sure. Uh, probably a bit of both and very rarely works after this a day in his life. And Patricia was very attractive. I mean, yeah, very, she was, very, you know, she was, she carried herself well. She looks a lot older in the pictures, I think, than 22, but it was probably the hairstyle. And they both like nights out in the town. And to be honest, I wasn't familiar with the term cafe society before I dug into it. I mean, I had heard of a store club and El Morocco and these famous clubs that no longer exist. The 21 Club was the last one of yeah. these, and, and it's just closing, I understand. New York was a focal point of Broadway and Hollywood, and people like rubbing shoulders with the stars, and they would spend hours each night dancing and dining on expensive liquor and champagne and food. And these are clubs that people are dressing to the nines. Yes. You're, you're going there to be seen and to right. see. Yeah, and, and, you, yeah. and it's hard to get in. I mean, wasn't their first date at the store club? Yeah, so that, that's what, at least according, you know, the other thing we have, some of this stuff is based on Wayne's recollections that right. I found that he told, or he did tell some of the, I guess in some of his uh, testimony, but also he did what he told Hamilton Darby Perry years later. So, yeah, I mean, you have to take some of this with a grain of salt. It was very difficult to get into these clubs with a reservation. Right. The dorm man was like uh, the guardian of uh, I get the right, gates of right. heaven and, and and so you had to have it, it was a, unless you were a somebody but they were very popular paparazzi or at least those early versions in the 1930s and 40s uh, people uh, took pictures and and the whole thing was to get your picture in the paper gossip columnists like Dorothy Gilgallan Ed Sullivan Walter Winchell they all wrote about the comings and goings of cafe society as I said club owners would have salivated at Twitter and Facebook. And <laughs> I mean, they just had no idea. That's what gossip columnists essentially were in those days. They were just a version of Twitter. So they were very popular and people got their news and people liked reading about the wealthy and the rich, and we still do. Wayne and Patricia were part of that. They, they weren't, I would say, centrally, but they were definitely part of it. She spends her last night of her life at the El Morocco on a date with somebody else. But her and Wayne eventually, they run away to Las Vegas where you could get hitched and go to a chapel. And that was more popular to do that in the 1940s and, and then really wasn't a mecca of gambling quite yet. And and much to Patricia's mother's uh, dismay, they eloped and got married. And that was like in 1941. You know, the, the marriage only, well, she gets killed in 1943, so the marriage doesn't last all that long. It was terrible uh, by all respects. Everything I read about their marriage, she was young and immature. He never worked, also unhappy, probably for a variety of reasons. And they fought a lot, like some young newlyweds might. They do have a child in July 1942, and their young son, who's raised by a nanny. <laughs> Patricia's rich enough to hire, uh, she has a maid and a nanny working for her. The marriage breaks up. I guess about June or July of 1943, so a few months before she dies. By that point, the war has started in the United States after Pearl Harbor. Wayne is Canadian, but he can be drafted into the U.S. Army. He manages to evade the draft by telling the draft court that he's a homosexual. Again, another example of him using this. And it was quite common. And as I explained in the book, there was the paranoia Americans have about communism. It was just as bad about homosexuality, certainly in the 1940s. I mean, they did everything they could, uh, officials, to weed out homosexuality. So anybody they thought 
God had homosexuals. They had these rather absurd tests, personality tests and physical tests that they attempted to ascertain someone's sexuality. So some people did use this as a way to evade it by pretending. Wayne later claimed that it was all a ruse and that he pretended the whole thing. I it's it may be so, but that he still went to that excuse is yeah, somewhat it, significant. It seems to be kind of a trope for him, as we'll see. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And that's probably early 1942, 40, yeah, 42 when that happens. And then he decides that when the marriage breaks up, Patricia, they had been living on a nice place on Park Avenue that I, you know, the other thing about this whole book is I was able to visit all these sites in the story and walk around and they're all, the buildings are still standing. She rents a place on East 51st Street, this beautiful townhouse that I uh, well, walked by. There's a, actually a doctor living there. <laughs> I tried to get into the place, but she wasn't. Did, did, that didn't work. Probably been renovated, but there were two families. Uh, Patricia had the basement and two floors with her son, her maid, and her nanny. And Wayne was living somewhere else for a while. And then he, he thought he could reconcile with her, but I, I don't think she was really interested in that. And they were both dating other people. Yeah, they started dating other people. He decides, for whatever reason, maybe searching for himself to enlist in the Royal Canadian Air Force. So he returns to Toronto at the end of the summer of 1943. That'd be August 1943. And he does enlist. He's trained at a program at the University of Toronto that's in downtown Toronto. This is just a couple months before the story. They They were both kind of parents, I mean, Patricia partied for hours at a time dating. And on the night she ends up getting killed, she goes out for like 16 hours. It's hard to imagine someone doing, you know, she leaves on Saturday afternoon and doesn't return till early Sunday morning on the weekend in October. Wayne is allowed to travel back and forth between uh, Toronto and New York, only because he's in the Air Force. There were restrictions on people traveling to the US and Canada during the war, but he's able to do it. And he's there at least one other weekend. And then on this weekend of October 22nd, he arrives and, and this is when the murder takes place. Should we talk about the night of the murder? Yeah, she has a date with this guy named Gabellini, who's a, an Italian uh, decorator, I suppose, a fun guy, probably about 20 years older than her, who's been married a few times. He was interested in her for obvious reasons. She was interested in him because he was fun. And uh, they meet up with some friends, and they end up at the El Morocco, and, and they dance, and this is her last night. And Wayne, meanwhile, that same evening, when he arrives in New York, it's very late. Uh, in the evening on Friday, October 22nd. And he is staying with a very wealthy friend named John Hargis, whose family is in the banking business. He is Ivy League, definitely, is very wealthy, has his uh, apartment on East 79th uh, near Lexington, which I, I stood in front of. How he and Wayne become friends, I guess, is through Wayne's connection to Patricia. They, they meet, and, and actually Wayne is an usher at his wedding, although by the time 1943 comes along, his wife has left him. Later, they get divorced on grounds of cruelty. This is Hargis. So Hargis is living alone in this beautiful apartment. He's still friends with Wayne and, and says to Lonergan that he can stay at the apartment. Hargis himself has to go to a wedding in the country, and he has two dogs. He takes the dogs, but he also has a butler. The last name is Peters uh, from Belgium, and, and his wife who look after him. So Wayne is told that he can stay at the apartment, but he has to eat his meals out. And before Hargis leaves for the country, 
Wayne obtains tickets to a Broadway play, and Hart just introduces him to a friend in an adjacent building named Jean Jayberg, who is also a young, beautiful woman. She had been in one or two Broadway plays as a backup chorus girl kind of thing, which is beautiful woman with lots of ambition. She had a son. She, she marries this older man, a businessman named Jayberg, who owns a grocery business. But they also, by the time Wayne meets uh, Jayberg, is also separated and later gets divorced. She has custody of her son, who's about seven or eight, I guess. Hart just arranges for Wayne to meet this woman, and she agrees uh, after some rearranging some other plans that she'll go to with Wayne out that Saturday night to the Broadway play and and dinner. So Wayne attempts actually at one point to get this J- woman out, to Jaybird out, and they actually attempt to get into El Morocco where Patricia shows up. So they could have actually encountered each other, but never did. I should add that, you know, Patricia, she's not vengeful about Wayne. She told her maid and the nanny that when Wayne was in New York, he could visit with their little boy, William, anytime uh, he wanted. And, and she, you know, didn't necessarily want to be his enemy, but she did write him out of her will which Wayne later finds out about. And, and you know, that may have been a factor in, in their animosity. And, you know, uh, who knows exactly. So on that night, they both they both are dating other people. They, Patricia goes out. She eventually comes home with Gabellini early in the morning. Meanwhile, Wayne has takes his Jayberg home back to her apartment probably late after midnight. Uh, they may or may not have kissed. Jayberg said they didn't Wayne said they did and and then and then this bizarre aspect of the case comes up uh, which Wayne later initially uses as an alibi and which taints the case he claims there were two entrances on Lexington. I, I actually talking to the doorman at the building. It's all you today. It's but there you can see there are two doors. So Jayberg, Gene Jayberg lived in one area, and Harges's apartment was another. So you had to walk outside to get between the two in those days. So apparently, according to Wayne, who later told the police initially when he was interviewed after the murder. He claims that when he stood outside for a few minutes to have a cigarette and and had an encounter with an American soldier, a guy he called uh, Morris Worcester, which is sort of a strange name to come off the top of your head, but nevertheless. Wayne then went into this whole story about how he invited the soldier to, to come up to Hardis's apartment, that the butler and his wife were sleeping, so they wouldn't have heard any of this. Wayne then says that ultimately a, uh, a sexual encounter happened between the soldier and Wayne. And then uh, during the middle of the night, this, according to Wayne's version of this crazy story, the soldier decides to rob Wayne of his money and to take his Royal Canadian Air Force uniform, which Wayne had been wearing. Why an American soldier would steal a uniform is sort of begs the question. Wayne, of course, never explained the answer to that question ever. Uh, he never really answered it because there was no answer. And the old story was kind of strange. Then uh, the soldier runs off and uh, Wayne uh, carries on with his Sunday morning and he drops off a toy that he had left somewhere else for his son and eventually leaves New York, going back to Toronto later that afternoon. By this time, on Sunday morning at Patricia's place, 
the nanny gets up and gives breakfast to the little boy, and she knows not to bang on the bedroom of Patricia because I guess she's sleeping. But Patricia did have arrangements to go out to the country with Gabellini to a friend's house outside of the city. The whole day, the bedroom door remains shut and is locked. Uh, eventually, the nanny, the governess, gets concerned and calls Patricia's mother, Lucille. Lucille comes over and you know is initially annoyed, thinking Patricia's either you know, sleeping off a drunken state or, or left without saying goodbye. But by the evening, they're growing concerned enough. Uh, they end up getting the help of a, of a football player uh, who's in the army that happens to be visiting and calls Patricia to say, talk to her. And he, they call him over and he comes over and he helps them open the bedroom door to get it off its hinges and so forth. Anyways, when they, when they get inside the bedroom door, they find her and she's lying uh, half naked on the bed, bloody gash on her head, and and she's dead. And thus the, the, the police are called. And so this would be Sunday night, October 23rd, 1943. And, and then, then the police investigation begins. Wow. Well, you know, <laughs> it, it's... Uh... It's quite a story. Yes. It is, it is. You know, obviously, as soon as they do the preliminary, I mean, the thing about this case, if the murder had been happened today, they likely would have solved it quickly because they would have had DNA and right. blood samples. One of the interesting things I learned was how, you know, the forensics, uh, they, they knew about blood typing, uh, grouping, but that didn't really help because even if you identified someone's blood type, well, big deal, a half, you know, planet was blood typo, or that didn't help. They did use fingerprints in those days, but the fingerprinting that they found, they couldn't read. And in fact, the fingerprints were never brought up at the trial, which is also kind of interesting. So they had all these fantastic experts, but they didn't really, there's really nothing tying him to the case. Right away, as soon as the DA or the ADA found out that he was in New York at the time, he became a suspect. And he had the main motive. I well, exactly. Right. And... They dispatched a couple of detectives and this ADA named John Lohr, whose family I tracked down and, and talked to his two sons. One of the sons is actually a judge, Gerald Lohr. They told me about their father and, and this case. District attorney in charge, the assistant district attorney in charge of the case was a, a man named Jacob Grumet, or it's spelled G-R-U-M-E-T, but it's pronounced Grumet. And he was a longtime serving prosecutor in New York. And, and he right away wants to talk to Lonergan. So it's arranged for the Toronto police to help to find Lonergan in Toronto. He's staying at a boarding house belonging to a friend, and they determine where he is. And they, on Monday morning, October 25th, 1943, they, they find him and they begin to question him. According to everything I could find, he never once asked to speak to a lawyer, though his, he's not arrested by the Toronto police, but he is sort of apprehended and taken into custody. And they've agreed to hold him until the people from New York arrive to question him. It takes a while for someone to fly. Actually, the two detectives took a train, which is even longer. The, the lore is able to fly, but his plane's late. So no one really talks to Wayne for many hours. Later, the whole treatment by the Toronto and New York police becomes an issue in, in Lonergan's appeal of the case. To my mind, he he's later claims he was treated like a victim of the Spanish Inquisition. He wasn't. I mean, he's given his cigarettes and food, and he's left alone most of the time. They said that they were rude to him. They physically assaulted him later. None of it is true in my view. I, I never could find any evidence of that. Every affidavit I saw from anybody, and there was a lot of people involved in looking after him, I, it would have to be a vast conspiracy of people lying to pull off something like this. 
he had scratches on his chin that he could not account for. They later found makeup. Jean Jayberg later told the police she never saw the scratches, but then they found some theatrical makeup at John Hurges' apartment that he probably used to put it over when he had, he had lunch with her before he left for the airport. It's actually some pretty decent detective work with that. It's like a max factor compact. <laughs> right, yes. and, they, and they find the pharmacy that, <laughs> right, sold, yes. that sold him. Right, and, and, and you know, the pharmacist sort of, what well, the pharmacist says that it was probably Wayne, uh, you know, again, not an, you know, the circumstantial evidence at best, but let, let's assume that's what he did. He eventually does confess, which I can I'll get to in one second. And thus we sort of learn what happens. And there is some more circumstantial evidence of people who one woman at least saw him. He's very cagey initially. Uh, when Laura gets to Toronto and for the first interrogation, Wayne comes up and tells him this crazy story about meeting the soldier and having sex. And, and John Laura, of course, doesn't believe a word of it. What happens is the, the story gets out. And thus, the tabloids were all over this story right from the start. I mean, the police had sources on the tabloids. They fed them information. There was a large crowd of people outside of Patricia's townhouse from the beginning. And the story really is, there were stories in the, in the Canadian and American newspapers almost from the beginning. And, and the tabloids, the, the Daily News in New York was all over this with huge pictures. And so, you know, eventually Wayne is referred to as a pervert and uh, twisted sex is this massive headline and with a picture of him coming back. Eventually, he does come back to New York for further questioning. And that, to me, you know, it he denies it later and does admit that this story about the soldier didn't happen. I mean, it takes Laura a lot of convincing for Wayne to tell him the truth. Ultimately, Wayne is prepared to later explain what happened, but only on the condition that they don't ask him any questions about his sexuality, which they agreed to do. Laura sort of tells him that Laura also has a young son at this time and tries to explain to Wayne how bad this will be for the little boy, his own little boy as he grows up. And I, I guess Wayne is convinced, again, not asking for any a lawyer, which now, Wayne's only 25 at the time and kind of uh, doesn't know what's going on. His relatives, his, his uncle did try to find him a lawyer, and there was a bit of a debate in Toronto about how the Toronto police handled this poorly, and the Crown or the prosecutor in, in Ontario and Toronto denied that Wayne was treated unfairly. But ultimately, Wayne agrees voluntarily to the extradition and agrees to be transported back to New York. They go by train to Buffalo, then there's some bureaucratic problems, and they have to stay overnight. He's with the two detectives. Laura, I think, is there, too. It's not clear exactly. But uh, the two detectives handcuff Wayne to a bed in a Buffalo hotel. Now, th this also, I, I do note, this is probably the worst treatment he got. He's not arrested for any crime, and yet they're handcuffing him to a bed because they don't want him to run away. Again, questionable behavior, but probably not in the 1940s. He arrives back in New York and is uh, brought to uh, in the lower Manhattan offices of Grumet and where Laura is and the New York detectives who investigated the case and thus uh, sets the scene for this confession. Eventually that Wayne agrees to confess. Uh, he says that Lore offered him a deal uh, that he would only go for manslaughter. Lord denies this conversation ever took place. And, and it actually would have been Grume, uh, the superior, his superior, would, who would have had to offer 
the deal and, and Grume said that this never happened. This is probably another figment of Wayne's imagination. But Wayne's lawyer attempts to bring this up during the trial. Wayne said he eventually, so he agrees to tell exactly what happened. You eventually come to this part in the story where Wayne is in a room with a, a there's a guy in a, on a dicta type and and he uh, confesses and I have the word for word confession in the file which I recreate in the book and you know ultimately it's a story uh, like many murders I think of someone losing control at a time in which he's threatened so here's somewhat I believe what happened. On 8.30 in the uh, Patricia's probably been home only for a few hours on Sunday morning, October 24th. She's very tired, hungover, and so forth. Uh, Wayne decides for whatever reason to go see her, maybe to convince her they should get back together or whatever. So he leaves the, his apartment, Hardridge's apartment, on 79th Street. So that's like 20, 30 blocks away. And he walks at 8.30 in the morning on Sunday. It's very quiet. The, P, the butler and the maid are still sleeping, so no one sees him leave or even come back. He goes to Patricia's apartment. And again, you know, there's sort of a main entrance to the place. So he get in into this vestibule area. and he knocks on Patricia's bedroom door. She answers, she sort of stumbles and answers the door, the maid, no one hears her in the building, not neither uh, Elizabeth Brown, the, uh, the, the governor, Elizabeth Black, sorry, the governess, or this other woman who's looking after a child for the other family that's living on the third and fourth floor of the Brownstone. They have a heated conversation inside Patricia's bedroom. Again, you know, she's half naked. She's on the bed. They both have a cigarette, which they later find, but again, couldn't use any DNA sampling of. And they both are sniping at each other. He's criticizing her for dating other women and calls her the belle of the El Morocco. Dating other men? Yes, sorry. dating other men, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What did I say? You said other women. I said, oh, okay, okay, <laughs> get really risky. Yeah, well, yeah, no, no, I said no, I'm even more. The press sorry. must have had a heyday with this one. <laughs> sorry, Patricia's dating other men. And, and then she accuses Wayne of being miserable. And he used to like go to clubs and just disappear for hours on end, leaving her in tears, and she'd have to come home by herself. So their, their relationship was, was lousy any way you look at it. And anyways, they, 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 this kind of fight goes on. They start yelling at each other a little more heatedly. And what happens? He says that she says to him that she's going to deprive him from seeing their son. And at this, I believe Wayne snaps, and there's this kind of uh, glass or onyx. Uh, the, the, she had these little statues in her room. He picks one up and throws it at her or hits her in the head. And then he just loses it, in my view. Right, and, snap. and he snaps, and he attacks her, hits her again with the other one that breaks in half, and, and he strangles her to death. And there's blood from her head that gets onto his uniform. I don't really believe he intended to kill her necessarily, but in this emotional state and telling him he can't see his son, I, again, I, I think it's just one of those cases of murder. And, and we, you, know, you know that, I'm sure you know more than me, that this happens a lot, this kind of stuff. He tries to wash himself up and wash the blood off the uniform, but of course that doesn't, he's unable to do that. That's, that's what they find in the bathroom in, in her, off her bedroom. 
He somehow, you know, I should add one more interesting side of the story. The uh, the woman who's looking after uh, Annalise, her first name is, she's looking after the child upstairs uh, in the other apartment. At the moment the murder is taking place, she comes downstairs to get the morning paper and does hear Patricia yelling. She doesn't hear a male voice, but she does hear Patricia say stuff like, oh, stop, please don't do this. And, and then silence and then an, a scream. You know, she's very young, also early 20s. She's from Germany. She's she's a nanny. Why didn't she call the police? She doesn't really ever answer that question. I couldn't find what happened to her. Uh, she sort of disappears from the story. She claimed she didn't, you know, she didn't want to get in trouble or didn't want, it wasn't her place, you know, that kind of attitude. So she may or she probably heard what, what had happened, but she doesn't see anything. The Elizabeth Black and Patricia's nanny is with the baby, and she doesn't see. Somehow Wayne is able to exit the bedroom, and there's a, a door, and get out of the brownstone without anybody seeing him. He then takes a circuitous route back, uh, walking up and down, which I, I also walked, which is kind of fun. I followed his route back to uh, Hardges' apartment. He walks up to you know First Avenue, which is uh, close to the East River, and back, and and anyways, he gets back there in 30 minutes or so. This is probably about 10 a.m. And he manages again to get into the apartment without the butler and the maid there seeing him. And he cleans himself up, takes a shower, and then decides that he has to get rid of his uniform because he can't be... Somehow, he, you know, I would think on a Sunday morning in October, there probably weren't a lot of people. No one noticed that he had blood in his uniform. At least he manages to get away with that. So no one remembers seeing him walking back to the apartment. And he he decides that he has to get rid of the the uniform, and and then he maybe concocts this other alibi uh, about the soldier. So he also gets rid of his money, puts everything in a duffel bag. He actually has to cut up his uniform to make it fit. He finds a duffel bag that belonged to Hargis. He gets out of the apartment again, no one's seeing him, and then heads for the East River, which isn't too far away. At this point, someone does see him carrying a duffel bag, a woman who had been introduced to him, a florist who was out walking her dog. And he makes it to the East River. Uh, there's an area on East 79th where there is sort of like a but he throws the duffel bag. He weighted the duffel bag down with a dumbbell that Hargis owned, and he watches the duffel bag sink. They never found the duffel bag. It's never been found. Police divers went into the water, but they never were able to locate it. And he goes back and then goes through his regular Sunday routine, which I told you. Visits. He goes back to Patricia's apartment, leaves a toy for his son that he had forgotten to give the other day, the day before, and, and sees Gene Jaybird for lunch and, and then eventually leaves, pretending he covers his face, the scratches on, on his face, which Patricia had clearly probably made, and then goes back to Toronto, and, and, and thus that's how the story. So that confession is really the, the key, the whole thing to his conviction in the trial. There's much made about whether the conviction was coerced. I mean, that is one legal avenue that Lonergan's lawyers attempt to prove then and then 20 years later. I should add, New York law is very different at the time. Like, we all know that the police beat confessions out of people, and it, it still happens. I mean, I, I wouldn't, there, there's enough examples of, of people confessing to crimes they didn't commit and, or, or just the police wearing people down. So, you know, let's assume that kind of behavior does happen. In this case, I looked at it every which way, and I don't believe Wayne was coerced. He volunteered. 
every single person in that room has there's an affidavit claiming that Wayne was not mistreated or told what to say or you know the, the confession was his own on and in, and in later the appeal courts do not uphold any any appeal on on the coerced confession the only issue was in New York at the time, there were sort of three kinds of ways in which confessions were treated in the United States at the time. In New York, it was up to the jury to decide whether or not the confession was coerced. In other states, it was up to the judge right. uh, or uh, generally, or, or the, the judge decided uh, beforehand whether the jury could even see the confession. But the, the New York version of this, which was maybe uh, 10, eight, nine states also used, was eventually uh, deemed unconstitutional in the 1960s and that it violated someone's 14th Amendment right because it was just seemed unfair. And, and there were other cases involved. So later uh, in the 60s, when Wayne did an actual appeal of this, he used a precedent that had been set by the Supreme Court. And a lot of confessions made in New York at the time were were open to question based on this, and, and they did have to change it and use a system where the judge at least considered whether or not the confession was coerced before letting the jury hear the confession. Alan, in your book, I found this very interesting that in New York, and for a long time up until recently, the defense was very hampered in this yes. case. And right. that's typical in New York jurisprudence. Let's talk a little bit about Lonergan's colorful attorney because he right. he's quite a character Robert, in this yeah. yeah and there's an ivy league connection with him as well, yes right? yes you know, didn't he have the most contempt citations <laughs> yes he was yeah this sort of classic kind of you know, huge guy overweight bombastic did everything in his power to upset the judge Initially, Wayne is given three lawyers, of which Broderick is one of them, and uh, there's actually two trials. Uh, the first trials before this guy, Judge Freshy, uh, that eventually is called a mistrial because of Broderick's antics. Can I just read something from your book? I sure. found I found it hilarious. It was actually about Broderick's appearance, and it was written by Thyra Winslow. She was one of the tabloid right. people. She says about him, about Broderick, he, of all the principles, seems miscast. His suit fitted badly. He has a double chin and a roll of fat at the back of his neck. <laughs> and the back view, especially, is a trifle plump. Right. I, th I think it was so catty, but very funny. Yes, <laughs> yes. I mean, he, he didn't really have a lot of, you know, tools in his arsenal here. He... I mean, it was Lonergan's confession is a key issue, and proving that Lonergan was coerced was his main. I mean, he went to Toronto. He tried to drum up other witnesses. He didn't put a lot of stock in, in Lonergan's initial alibi, actually, but he drove Groomay crazy. Groomay didn't have to share, as you point out. Uh, he, he didn't have to tell him anything about any evidence before he introduced it. They had a bit of a fight about the medical examiner's report. For whatever, which is kind of strange, I... I, I I looked through it. There, there were sort of two, uh, there was the full medical examiner's report and then the medical examiner's report eventually released so that Broderick could look at it. And, and really, I, he made a big thing about the fact that he could never see the full report and he claimed that in that full report there'd be evidence exonerating Lonergan and, and, and trying to point to someone else who had committed the crime, although I, I don't know who else would have done it or wanted what, what would have been involved. There, there's nothing really, I don't know why he wouldn't have released the full one, maybe because he just a power play and didn't have to. But yeah, so they really were kind of tough on this. And he wouldn't share initially information about uh, the jury pool or any of the witnesses that he planned to call. 
Carroll and or anything really. And as you said, they didn't have to. And that's a that's a recent thing. It's shocking, really, uh, how how much power that the prosecution have. I know like in Canada, until the 1990s, prosecutors in Canada had a similar kinds of power. And then they, they changed that, that you, you had to disclose under disclosure rules. But in the States, uh, different States have different disclosure rules. And New York, was they were like yeah so the the defense attorneys were were hampered i was surprised it only changed in 2019 i know it's crazy it is you know that's it it is for sure i'm surprised that he used his homosexuality as such a defense especially at a time i mean i can understand using that today but at that time with it being such a taboo it surprises me that he would have used it it is, and well, that's it. You know, he he denied uh, to the end of his life that he was gay or bisexual. He, even though every single person I I interviewed, a few people, an actor in t- Toronto, an older guy that did remember him, and everybody claims that it, his bisexuality was no secret, but he he refused to ever admit it. But again, you know, I know that's what I mean. It it comes up. He he was a loose with the kind of information. I mean, he once told the cop uh, in Toronto that he made money pleasuring man for, for a couple dollars uh, as a way to make money. I mean, who says, you know, who says that if it's not true? It, 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 it is rather striking that and using it to get out of being drafted in the U.S. Army. Again, that's a story he comes up with about the murder. It's, it's, the story was disproved. First of all, the, uh, in one point in the, in, in the whole story, this a guy named Morris Worcester comes forward because he's being, he's being razzed by his friends that he's gay. And and, and I mean, what kind of, how many Morris Worcesters could I there know, be? I know, I feel like that's like a, yeah, you said your your friend, like Bob Papon, and yeah. <laughs> he up. So it sounds like a character out of a Seinfeld show. Right, it's like you just looked at the closest thing and made the name. Yeah. It's true, but I I think at the time, you cannot underestimate how much they pathologized homosexuality. It was treated like mental illness. It was treated like a perversion. It was really... Oh, no, you lost your job. You lost your kids. uh, You were uh, condemned, arrested. If there was two men dancing in a bar by you, the bartender could be arrested. Yeah. So, I mean, they did everything they could, the police to stop. And I mean, this, this went on into the 1960s. It was something that uh, you had to be careful with. And this Although, case has been taken up, hasn't it, as by people, you know, wanting to kind of look at whether it was a coercion case or his sexuality was yes. an issue. But you have no doubt as to whether or not he I, I don't. I mean, I think the sexuality issue taints the jury pool. I mean, it has to, right? It prevented women from being involved in the jury uh, because they thought they were too, uh, they, they wouldn't be able to handle some of the stuff. Oh, I mean, a classic. Take and, the women out of the room. Yes. And you can't pretend that the men didn't know about Lonergan. And they believed the confession, even though yeah. there was an attempts to discredit it. But I mean, to me, the confession, who could make up such a confession? The story, if you, <laughs> if you read his testimony... It's so detailed in what he told. Uh, you know, he's got a good imagination, I'll say that. But the confession is just too detailed, and it, it makes too much sense. And every appeal that he went through was denied. And he, I have no doubt that he committed the crime. There, there is no other uh, explanation right. why someone would target her. I mean, nothing was stolen. She had jewelry in her room. 
that the police found that was worth upwards in those days of like $20,000. That's not a motive at all. And I, I, I do believe that that he did it. Um, there's no doubt. Um, again, you know, I guess the one thing I can't, I can't prove it hundred percent, but my, my understanding of reading all the, the documents and, and digging into the case and, and trying to understand the personality and pathology of all this is that that's a conclusion. I, be, I believe, and he, you know, he goes to prison, but he's, he's a con man. But to back up a little bit, the first trial is declared a mistrial. Yes. It has to do with the uh, Broderick's antics by going to Toronto and then raising issues that were irrelevant, to be honest. And then uh, there's a second trial in front of a tougher judge, Wallace, who was a former DA and had had actually prosecuted... Uh, Wallace was a football star at Columbia as yeah, well. Yeah, football star at Columbia. And, and he was sort of a... In the book, you make the point that he's kind of a, a morality judge. Yes, that was it. I mean, he, had, uh, yeah. he, he goes after Mae West, sorry, in 1927. Oh, no. Oh, yes. Yeah, she, at, the t at the time, uh, West had... Thanks for uh, that. Put on, a, put on a show called Sex. That's right. That's right. And there was a, a padlock law in New York that was passed, and they basically came in and closed down the theater, and she was arrested, and not much happened to her. And, oh, I love uh, no, but but I I love her, and I love her quip at the end, which is like, "Hey, thanks a lot. This will make exactly. me, you know, what I mean? like I, I love it, you know." We're gonna have to post that. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I we'll have to post that. I love Mae West. So me too. So he also ultimately goes to prison. Yeah, I mean, he, he's convicted and uh, given like a 30, 35 year sentence. Right. Uh, he escapes the electric chair because it's second degree murder. He ends up in uh, Sing Sing initially and then is transferred up north to uh, Danamora or Clinton prison. Uh, up upstate New York, always declaring his innocence and that he had been railroaded by Jacob Grumet and, and the New York prosecutor. Broderick dies in the mid 50s, I guess. And uh, the, he finds this other lawyer in this one. Once these appeal, once the confession law is changed in, in cases in uh, New York and they start reexamining how confessions were made. Eventually, in 1965, Wayne is actually given a hearing, and the whole case is then retried in the paper again. He he's actually put on the stand, and he tells a story, and he you know he's had a lot of a lot of years to rehearse what had happened to him, and and he's been studying the law pretty. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, yes, but, yes, uh, yeah. yeah. He has this this uh, woman lawyer who's a firebrand. She ends up getting in trouble and get disbarred, but oh, a it, con. Yeah, she's an interesting person, and she fights for him. And but again, um, you know, the appeal is dismissed without even a written argument, and so we don't really know what the judges didn't believe anything. But it does sort of bring up the whole story again, and and, and certainly in Toronto, it becomes front page news. And Scott Young, uh, who is Neil Young's father, the, the singer, he was a writer for the Globe and Mail. He he takes a shine to Lonergan and starts writing about it and following it, and all these stories come out whether Lonergan was was railroaded and is a fall guy and 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 people start questioning the whole story uh, and, and why, is, why do people always like to take up these cases i know it's like, <laughs> it's like jeffrey mcdonald case i know it's like it's like the intelligentsia <laughs> gathers around and, i know you know these guilty people yeah. i just yeah. we yeah. see it time yeah. you know ira einhorn uh, <laughs> you know we just see these people time and time again that are so guilty and then right. these really brilliant 
writers and people just like love to gather around them and fight for them. Right. Laura, Laura be careful. Alan's a writer. <laughs> <laughs> so he gets out though eventually. Well, yeah, eventually, even though the appeal fails, I guess he had been eligible for parole probably from about 1963 on. And eventually they grant him parole in 65, uh, end of 65, and he is deported immediately back to Canada. And uh, Scott Young actually helps him and he, he uh, tries to rehabilitate himself. For a while, actually, he is able to get a passport and, and eventually goes to England, but comes back before that happened in December of 65, I guess. So soon after he got out, probably through uh, Scott Young and, and the CBC, they have this great television show called This Hour Has Seven Days, which actually 60 Minutes is somewhat modeled on uh, or, or parts of it. It was an interesting news show, but also could be very controversial. I mean, they, they once had members of the Ku Klux Klan dressed in full white regalia with two African-American civil rights leaders on the same stage. And you can imagine the tension of that. That, that was in the 60s. And the, the show eventually was canceled after there's such an uproar about things that had done. But they interviewed Lonergan. I couldn't actually get a copy of the TV show, but I got the audio files. And so I was able to listen to the uh, unedited audio files of the interview that went on for several days. Scott Young eventually interviews him and then this CBC journalist uh, who's still alive in his 80s, probably Ken LaFoley, who I tracked down and talked to. And he does remember Lonergan. But listening to Lonergan talk about the whole thing is, is very fascinating. One, he has this fantastic Brooklyn accent that I guess after 25 years plus in a prison, he picked up and he sounds, he's, he sounds like a mobster you know and using the phrase forget about it and stuff like that the other thing is you know he when asked did you kill your wife uh, he, his answer is cagey and he says my position is no but he never not once it's like in, it's, like, it's like the von bulow answer yeah, yeah. in like the, the whole thing probably lasted uh four hours maybe not once in four hours did he mention Patricia by name, which I thought was very telling. Uh, he just called, referred to her as my wife. And so Wayne carries on and he finds another woman, but strangely enough, to look after him. And he has no money, really. They but always he, do. <laughs> he comes into contact with this comedic actress, uh, a musical actress in Canada. Her name is Barbara Hamilton. She, she's passed away. For whatever reason, uh, she takes a liking to him and I'm not sure exactly. She said she loved him and they, they, she allowed, she looked after Wayne until he died in 1986 from cancer. And I, and I interviewed people uh, who knew both of them and uh, they said Wayne was quiet. One of the people I interviewed is now an actress. She, she was like probably a young teenager at the time. Her friends were friends with Barbara Hamilton. She remembers Wayne as she told me he was very creepy. Uh, and <laughs> that was, so I thought that was kind of interesting. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you were never, people who talked to Barbara Hamilton were never allowed to ask her about Wayne. It was sort of like off limits. So in any interview she did, she, she, she died uh, maybe 10 years after him. Um, and thus, uh, you know, that's the story. I mean, Wayne never saw his son, his young son is now mm -hmm. 78. I, I wasn't able to find him. I, 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 that's probably, I wasn't sure whether I should find him. I mean, once his grandmother died in 1954, he inherited an awful lot 
of money. So he went to Harvard. There's your yeah. uh, connection. Um, I, after, like, the last newspaper report of him is from the 1960s. Dominic Dunn, and in, in the, the, you mentioned earlier, uh, you know, he, he decided not, when Dominic Dunn wrote about this case uh, in, in a collection of stories about murders for the magazine that he published later, he decided that he wouldn't try to find the guy that would have been a little younger at the time uh, because he said, child, you know, what, what are you going to ask him? You know, he was 18 months old. His father is convicted of killing his mother. I mean, his I grandmother, know. Lucille, lived to the 19, 1966. She raised the boy. She changed his name, last name to Burton from Lonergan, um, and he disappears. And I think I, I, I may have found him. I, I don't know if it was. I, I decided not to reach out to him. I, I just wasn't sure how we uh, feel Alan, about the whole thing. I'm a, I'm a PI <laughs> in my day job. You should have called me. I, I mean, he, I think it sounds like a respectful decision. Yeah, yeah. I I, 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 he could find you if he wanted to. That's yeah, right. I'm I mean, he knows aware. about the book. He, I mean, the only thing I would have liked to have known it was about the grandmother a little bit more, and he could have filled that right. in. Sure. Uh, but, I but I, you know, according to what I understand, he ne Wayne never saw the boy again. He, he did attempt to contact him, and then, according to some sources, uh, you know, lawyers letters from lawyers came and told him to leave the kid alone. Anyways, this this guy was very is very wealthy, and and so is still around. And that, that's probably the one question I get all the time. I, and, I think that's very respectful of you that yeah. you handled it that yeah. way. No, I think, so. yeah. I think Interestingly so. Interestingly enough, I, since the books came out, I did get a, an email from someone who would be Lonergan's uh, grandniece that the family, I, I, an excerpt of the book was published in the Toronto Star and she must have seen it and then emailed me. And I, I had been trying to find the family. I didn't know what happened to them. But I never heard back from her what she thought about this. It's so funny. She never knew anything about the, the book or even that there had been wow. another book written about it. But they were, she was like, uh, her grandfather would have been Wayne's brother, uh, an older brother. And uh, they were both, her grandmother had just passed away and is the one person that probably would have known. I'm sorry that I wasn't able to talk to her. She would have been interesting. You just grab this part of history 19 this is world war ii cafe society new york there's so much going on in the world and you you just bring yeah, this you yeah, just you just bring this story our alive. Library, yes. no, absolutely it was a pleasure a pleasure and just it also hit to so many other stories and i mean i'm i just read uh dorothy kilgallen's book right, and right. you know and it just Every it's really interesting how many other stories it cuts into and other characters. So it's really fascinating. In New York history, we're big fans of other New York podcasts yeah. and of history. So just really fascinating right. stuff. I guess more of my background. I mean, I attempted to sort of integrate a social history into a story of a true crime. That was mm -hmm. my intent. We really love, we interviewed Simon Betts, who did right. Pearl and, the, and, and a similar right. thing where you really get a lot of New York. Yeah, which, absolutely. Yeah, you know, yeah. And of the culture. And I think that that was really rich. And I, I think our listeners are going to enjoy that. Good. This, yes. This morning, I put a picture of the Stork Club on. People got excited. Absolutely. Like, <laughs> yeah. What I love about your book is there's this sort of incidental culture and history that weaves right. through it, which I, I absolutely love with the crime. In any case, we could talk to you. Yes forever but ever ever but pleasure. you know we need to and is there how could our listeners get in touch with you or read you a website or uh yeah www.alanlevinebooks.com and you can find me there my email is posted on there and i am on twitter at at alan levine one word 12 
Um, and and it's Alan. It's Alan with two, with an A with two A's. So it's and A L L A N. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. And we're gonna we'll post all the links on our Facebook page and on Twitter and on Instagram, Great. so everyone has access. What a I pleasure! Look what a pleasure! Thank you again, and, Alan. And and Alan, you still look fifty. I have <laughs> to you. tell you. you okay. To tell. Whoever's listening here, yeah. I, yeah, I, I, I appreciate that. It's a shocker. Okay, great. Thanks, Thanks, Thanks for talking to you. All right. Talk to you. Bye-bye. Murder, murder.